This is Frameform. Hannah, one. Claire, two. Jen, three. All right. Hello and welcome back, everyone. Uh, it's Frameform season four, if you can believe it. Oh, my God. Uh, Jen, Claire, hi. How's it going? Hey, hey. I, I can't believe it. It's season four already. Yeah, it feels good to be back sitting down. It was nice to be on the road, not going to lie. That part was fun. But to be back at the round table and at our screens, actually, in a way, is kind of a nice nostalgic feeling. And it's good to be back. Yeah. Yeah, it feels it feels grounding yeah. in a way. Yes. Um, yeah, as Jen says, we've been doing a lot of exciting stuff as of late, but it's nice to kind of be settled and just, uh, yeah, get get to a more grounded place. I've upgraded my setup. I now have a great pillow to sit on. I <laughs> I mean, we're not a video podcast, but I think just for fun, I feel compelled to share since we're talking about site-specific choreography. I've updated my site um, for this specific task, so it's more pleasant this season. I have a nice uh, wedge pillow to sit on and good back support. <laughs> I used to be leaning on a dresser and sitting on a stack of jeans, so... This is a, an exercise in upgrading. There's a lot of uh, things that we've upgraded to this season. If you haven't noticed already, we've been releasing our episodes bi-weekly rather than weekly this year just to change things up a bit. We just wanted maybe a little bit of a not-so-stressful schedule of posting, but we're just taking it easy this year, but we will be reporting in all year long. And if you also haven't noticed, we've been collaborating with Dance Camera West. These past couple of episodes have been such a treat to us, getting to know the filmmakers, learning more about their works. And uh, I'm so happy that uh, Jen and Claire, you guys got to go out there and actually see the festival for yourself. How was that for y'all? It was a great weekend. It was really fun to see, well, see so many people that we hadn't seen in so many years. And also meeting people for the first time that maybe we only had email communications with. Yes. Um, and just having that, you know, communal, like communal roundtables and communal uh, viewing experiences was just such a, a welcome experience. Yes, for sure. And I think the word communal is really important here because part of the, oh, person from the internet that's here live, part of that factor is COVID, part of that factor is geography, and LA is a center for dance, for film, for dance film. And it just is great for that. You are going to see people, and there are many dance film companies and festivals and curators and producers and creators there that it's just has an energy to it it it's different than other city scenes but it certainly um you know has a magnetism that I think it will continue to draw people I really enjoyed our our luncheon that we hosted actually that was super fun too um even though it wasn't necessarily uh interview driven or Gabri's workshop but yeah it was so great to connect in person yeah, I wish I didn't didn't miss it, but I'm glad that someone was there to represent uh, what we have going for us at Frameform. 
And with that, we're hoping to do more partnerships later this year. And um, there will be more details and upgrades to the podcast later this year. So keep on listening and pay attention and see what's to come for us. But other than that, uh, we're talking about site-specific choreography and we're very excited because, you know, that's what dance film is all about, is site-specific choreography. And it's very interesting to hear, especially the last two years, people gravitate towards a site as opposed to a stage or talk about that process of gravitating towards a specific outdoor location rather than a stage. Because if you think about the history of dance and the history of the development of dance, the stage really didn't play a factor until really the 17th, 18th century. Up until then, all dance technically was a site-specific dance. It was, you know, practiced in um, areas that were not necessarily delineated for lots of movement. And it wasn't until later on when that dance was adapted first to the court floors and then to the stage that we started to establish the stage as a place where sort of like the default place that we see dance. Now, because we see that as the default place to see dance, a lot of people associate dance with sort of that, you know, creation on a blank space or creation on an unobstructed plane. And so when it comes to site specificity, a lot of people have the idea of, creating in that plane and then transposing it onto a site. I, I don't score in that approach. That's a totally valid approach. But I also want to um, bring up something from Melanie Kletzel, who I think is one of the preeminent scholars and writers of site-specific dance, who suggests that um, the notions of site dance include works inspired by a particular site, works that adapt the site to suit the work, and works that have adapted to fit the space. Now, all of those are key components of site-specific dance, and we're going to go into those in uh, much greater detail. But also, this isn't the first time that we've mentioned non-proscenium locations on this show. Not our first time, certainly not. <laughs> of course not. I feel like every single film, every single project we talk about, site specificity comes up anyways because it's such an integral part to whatever we're experiencing but of course we have to shout out our location scout series because these episodes we really are looking through the lens of these specific locations and environments and I really enjoy how our episodes combine both looking at examples of films that show these locations really well and are uh, things to aspire to and to enjoy and to learn from, but we also share just some practical tips. So today is going to be a more fundamental look at that. It's going to strip away specific locations and even specific films. We're not covering as many of those today. We're really talking more about your basics and just good technique on how to think about site-specific works and also just some general things that us as viewers, us as curators, um, and us as creators want to think about with site-specific dance film work. So let's take a look at the framework of creating a piece, a film, 
a dance score in a location that is outside of maybe something like a proscenium, a blank slate. Uh, if we're looking at our past location scouts, whether that be the desert, water, snow, and so forth, uh, the warehouse is a great example as well. We have so many kind of different terrains of what that floor looks like. Uh, if it's you know, a swimming pool, for instance, it's a blank space, but we also have different levels of that, of that flooring, because we can go low, we can go above ground, maybe the swimming pool is full of water, and we're playing within that space between the, what we know is dry versus wet. I think what we have here, it could be considered a blank slate, but it's how you create the piece in that location of gravity. Learning the space at first, first thing when you think of where you're going to put your piece is how you're going to create something totally original without it being transposed from, let's say, a dance studio to roll your die wherever it's going to go. I, I just want to say right off the bat, um, I don't believe that there's anything any such thing as a blank space. Even if you have a dance studio environment or a swimming pool environment or something that has like an like an unobstructed plane to it, each place has a specific context, whether the person creating that knows that or not. I mean, just consider like the black box theater for a second. Uh, some people may consider the black box as the ultimate void, but that black box, again, is a construction. It's a fundamentally Eurocentric construction and one that's tied to that uh that culture and that development and so even when you're doing uh basic composition classes I remember when I was in college and uh taking my first composition class I would say half and half the lessons were taught in studio and on site because much of what we were taught to how we were taught to generate movement came from how we were feeling like not wholly putting technique aside, but really feeling how you like the state you were in and creating from that state and seeing how that state alters from location to location. So our final project was actually creating a site specific choreography, like going to a part of campus, spending time in that site and constructing a piece. And Every, I mean, basically everything shifts when you take the dance out of the studio, not just when it comes to levels and when it comes to the the elements, but the timing shifts. Yeah. The conception of space shifts. And really the audience perspective shifts. Everything really changes when you take it to another location. I always think of when you're at the dance studio and you're rehearsing for your big recital and you're in this tiny room and then you get to go to the Ooh. stage and it's like a totally different feeling yes. and personality. Everything does really shift. And I think that's like the sparkle of doing on-site location work because there's a little bit more elements to play around with. Everything really does start to feel 3D dimensional to you not just as 
the viewer, but also as the dancer. I, I, there's something new to it every time when you, even if you're doing a dance of some sort, something is added on to it. And I think that's really special. And I think that's how these works really shine through because of what the location has to offer for the dancer the camera shooter well, and of course the because audio this is mixer not all of that podcast where we're focusing as much on live performances where we really do talk about the intersection with screens and with cinema and with film and popular culture but in this case you know we've been talking about site-specific choreography and that's just the level of what exists in the space live in the moment and how we prepare for that then you need to add the layer of the choreography of the edit and how do you shape the work and use the elements of line, light, texture, color, um, you know, all of these different elements that you get once you combine these dancing bodies, the dancing camera, the location. And it's, it's really fascinating how when you think about screen dance or dance film, you, as Claire said, there's no blank, there's no blank slate every space has a context. So you have that, but then you also have the choices between what exists and what you end up watching as a final product. There's so many choices that happen along the way. And I really do see it all as design. And the more that we look at those fundamentals like rhythm and line, you know, all the ones I listed before, right. (laughs) And more, those are Mm -hmm. the, in my, in my view are like, yeah, and I, I'm not saying in my view like it's I'm the only person that thinks this, but this is certainly something a framework that helps me um, as a creator, curator, and audience member. Is I really enjoy looking at those basics because that is what unites and connects all of these different forms. Absolutely, and even just a slight manipulation of those basics can completely transform a space. It really is a process of choreo- like choreographing that mise en scène, like that really reframing that mise en scène whenever you're creating in a location. And I actually want to shout out uh, Gabby Gabri Krista for a second, who I think really does that. Not only does that very well in the, her work, but also teaches that very well as far as being very deliberate with the space that you're in and exploiting all the possibilities of it. Speaking to the edit and choreographing location in the edit talking about three-dimensionality I think is a very integral part to these works setting the scene but not just always including dance inside of it I think what one thing is when we're watching these pieces we need to find a way that we feel the cold we feel the water we feel the leaves uh, underneath our feet I think that's super important when we're making films like these Uh, one uh, one of my favorite films uh, is call me by your name and I think the sweat in the movie like as in the, the the way the sun is captured in it you really do feel that summer heat as well as the sound of the bugs and just the nature of itself um, besides all the other stuff aside but I think that's so important when we're making films in these locations because you want to transport your audience uh, emotionally feeling it 
I, that's why we make movies is to feel something and experiment with our emotions and visually as well. So it's not just the dance, but also how do we really For sure. You definitely touched on two important things in. there, uh, which are sound. Like you were dealing with an audio visual medium here. And I think when I think of the best site specific films, I also think about ones that include sound um, in the mix. And that's again, you know, if on the tally, uh, maybe it's another point for screen dance ahead of live performance, or maybe it's not, I don't know that you can manipulate and add and mix the sound to create something. Of course, you know, I'm thinking of warehouse Samba here as a stellar example um, of course, that's going to be linked in the show notes. And there is mm-hmm. also a making of video that goes with it that looks at the exact microphone that was used. And this was like 10 years ago. So I'm sure there's a new model of the microphone, but it's still good to see the setup and just get inspired about different ways you can use a space. The other thing is eliciting a bodily reaction from the viewer or showing that on screen, like literally showing signs of life, like breathing, blinking sweating, crying, laughing. You know, that's why comedy and horror are such impactful genres because they elicit a bodily reaction from the audience, you know? So definitely the strongest works for me have that level of communication in a way, that level of detail. I mean, that's a fantastic point, Jen. And I mean, again, just adding on to uh, Warehouse Samba and, you know, really exploiting the possibilities of every single possibility of that space. Like Warehouse Samba is really a prime example of literally showing the resonance of that space or literally like displaying the resonance of that space. And that's ultimately what makes it a strong film. And, but also I wanted to reflect on what both of you were saying with regards to the location and with regards to feeling the location um, or how we experience the location. Because when we watch a film, the bodies we see or the humans we see are not the only things dancing. The space has so much potential for movement. Um, For me, uh, the work of Simon Files and Katrina McPherson really shows that off very well. And there's very much a specific, I guess, look that their collaboration had as far as, you know, being filmed primarily in the Scottish Highlands. But there really was a great sense of showing both the micro and the macro potential of uh, how the body interacts with that space, both showing the both showing sort of the granular nature of bodies rolling in these thistles, as well as the scale of a small body in a giant space. And when it comes to Simon and Katrina, their work. Uh, does involve both improvisation from the performers as well as the camera. But it's very, very deep improvisation. Like they will come away with 15 hours of footage that they'll uh, craft into a six-minute film. They're with these dancers for hours upon hours at a time, honing in on that, um, honing in on the movement material as well as where how the camera is positioned or how the camera is moving in relation to the dancer. That is patience. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they and and that's something that really separates effective. I mean, I don't want to draw a complete binary here in saying effective and non-effective, but the ones that really stand out are 
the the ones that show that level of honing. Because we'll see a lot of films and submissions uh, where you'll see someone kind of outside having like very much like feeling the space. And that's the thesis of the film. But with the work of Katrina and uh, and Simon, specifically I'm thinking of pieces like uh, Quarad, um, There is a Place, Wathlochens, uh, there really is a sense of tactility and a sense of a sense of intention with the improvisation. It isn't just like, you know, searching for something. It is really uh, finding that thing and then continuing to hone in on it while still keeping the freedom of that improvisation. Of great improvisation and great planning. And that, you know, I, I hate to quote Oprah or do I? I don't know. She says, luck. I, do I? I don't know. Mm. I'm going to do it. Why would I hate to quote up? Anyways, moving on. <laughs> Do it. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So <laughs> that to me embodies great art and great moments and the beauty of live performance is that fleeting moment and the beauty of film is the ability to capture it and in some, not in a bad way, manipulate it, but evolve it, transform it and create some whole new thing from it in this whole other dance with technology and you know, Claire, you really spoke to the beauty of improv and I agree with that a hundred percent. And every, every film that I've ever made, there's improv involved. And a quick note I want to mention about improv for people that are maybe starting out to make films is don't be afraid to film, do what you need to do to get the visual that you want, even if it's not the final audio visual result. What I mean by that is if you want your dancers to move a certain way, play like heavy metal, play classical music, play Spanish guitar, like whatever is going to get that visual that you want, even if it's not the final thing. It's a great way to use the fact that you are going to quote unquote fix it in post. If it doesn't have to be exact, it's a great way to do that and get some variety. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Actually, um, I just want to shout out Robin Deckers again, who created this absolute epic film all over California, which was a translation of um, the Orpheus and Eurydice story, which is actually a property a lot of people are touching lately. Um, I guess people uh, like uh, raising What's not to love the and not looking at them. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's one really incredible epic scene where uh, the dancers portray like the river Hades. I think it was, um, I could be completely wrong there, but um, the music that Robin was playing was J pole. It was just like, you know, J poles, like illegally, yeah, whatever you got to do to get the mood album. Okay. That community. Exactly. Well, <laughs> on, on the contrast of improv, you have planning and I really appreciate planning and when things come together and they look just right. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say Wes Anderson does not own symmetry and color, but you know, curing Albrecht is a great example. I actually think Hannah, you might've been the person that said this. And if not, it's like, it's still something you would have said <laughs> is that curing Albrecht is like if Wes Anderson directed a dance film. And it's the color palettes, it's the symmetry, yeah. it's the repetition. <laughs> it's so satisfying to look at. And in that, you know, even if you remove the context and the story and the acting and the comedy, just on a fundamental visual level, that is a beautiful film to watch. Even if you take out the audio. 
But when you add in all the other levels of execution and the story and the fact that it was filmed with the Manchester Baths and it's this collaboration, it, it just is a great way practically to use screen dance or dance performance to revive these spaces that otherwise might be forgotten. And it's a good way to get grants. It's a good lucrative pathway, I think, to really look at how do we, you know, create something, but how do we also make it function, um, you know, serve another function for the community in a way that might actually help us make it possible. Because that's always a question is funding and opportunities. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity if we look at our historic spaces that are obviously safe to dance in, which is something <laughs> we're going to be talking about next is like coordinating yeah. with your locations and how to make those decisions and what really is possible and what you should look out for. And with planning, I have to say, as an editor, I think makes life so much easier, especially when you know what the film is going to be like when you're putting it all together. Yes, improvisation is a great tool, but when you have everything storyboarded, you know the beginning, middle, and end, if, and it's like a broad part of it. That's going to make your editing life easier and you're not going to go into an existential crisis like uh, I might be going through with one of my projects. But, you know, I'll get there. I'll get there. Absolutely. And there, there I mean, there are different approaches to how the edit can be constructed. Uh, again, I, go, I throw back to Simon Files and, you know, the process of developing editing scores, like taking uh, taking a clip and um or taking two clips and naming them A, B, and then looping them, then looping them both, then putting them in sequence. That's a valid way to do it. But also, you know, That'd be nice you want your editor sane. to stay sane. So. <laughs> yes. Please keep us sane. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes it can be very interesting um, passing off your footage to another editor who maybe doesn't even have a sense of what that site is like or what the context of the creation is like and really is seeing it with fresh eyes and you know creating their own context for what uh what's going to be seen i would argue though that their eyes should not be so fresh that they have no way of understanding movement and i'm not even saying they need to be experts in dance but any kind of movement even just basic continuity editing and being able to match those sorts of things it is very hard sometimes to watch dance sequences even in large productions on film and tv and sometimes dance isn't the priority but like it's really jarring when you notice the editing is off and I think it's really important to get someone that understands not just how to read the human movement on screen but has a good understanding of how to get the larger picture and the movement and the edit and the connection and the rhythm and the music and the sound and just has good technique in general with those things very important. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think what you're you're just referring to, Jen, as well, it's very common of people, yeah, not only common of people who don't understand dance or really understand what they look, they're looking at, but kind of treat dance as an object. Like they think, oh, that is the dance and don't really go into the details of, oh, where's that movement coming from? What's that movement referencing? Um, why are they going from like a very, very held position to a very grounded position? And I think that that, you know, that disconnect also can involve the locations as well. 
because sometimes you'll have a film that's like created in a location and there are other meanings attached to it that maybe weren't intended, which can also be a good thing. The one film that actually um, had added meaning after we read more about it was Clouded, the Will Johnston film. We have these, this movement that's very much in this open space. We have this drone footage that's showing, um, really showing the cracks in the desert. And we also have the horizon line in the background. Now, it's also interesting noticing in the credits that this was partially funded or partially supported by Inland Empire. Uh, I'm not quite sure what like the, what kind of film commission that they have, but it was really staged in that San Bernardino Riverside area, which has its own incredible context. It was a rich agricultural, rich industrial area until the late 90s, and then got completely slammed by the recession. So knowing that these dancers are on land that maybe once was rich, but now is not in an area that is still is trying to find its way back really adds another residence to the story as a whole. So when creating in a specific environment, you have to really do, do your research and due diligence as far as seeing what kind of resonance your site has beyond the work that you're creating in it and what kind of meanings that that can layer onto it. So artistically, that's something you have to consider. And then you have all the joyful, practical elements to consider whenever you're creating on site as well. We're going to pivot to tips and best practices when you're prepping to shoot in these locations or do anything in a place that's not maybe your living room when you're planning all this stuff out. So this is just basically your quick little rundown of things you really should think about and consider before basically doing anything. Now, Claire, uh, between the three of us, you are probably shooting the most on the regular uh and as i'm the one just quietly sitting at home with my headphones on working on editing jen all of the above claire tell us about like some things that you're going about with your day-to-day shooting schedule and whatnot what are your tips and tricks, basically? I mean, nowadays, for the most part, I'm shooting in theatrical settings where things are very controlled. And there's uh, a lot less of a consideration as far as like, okay, how are we navigating sound? How are we navigating lighting? How are we navigating um, shooting in this space? But then there are other shoots, usually that come in the summer months and certainly came after the pandemic, where people are creating works in uh, public spaces, in parks, in um, aviaries. Uh, let's see. <laughs> aviaries. I think. Oh, yeah. Like wow. I mean, well, okay. kid's not name. Exactly, not an aviary. This is my like daughter, a- aviary. A- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's I was just thinking of means, birds. Like, it just sounded like a hip name. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, I mean, actually, I, I did shoot, shoot a piece about birds on a bird sanctuary, and um, oh no, got, a, got attacked by bees. So that was well. Great. At least you're not Thomas. 
So <laughs> you're here to tell the tale. Mm, that's <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Indeed. But whenever you're shooting on site, whether you're doing just a, a big film shoot or whether you're doing something very simple, well, technically, you want to make sure that you have enough power, that you have enough batteries. If you know that you're going to have to charge batteries, you need to make sure that you have a generator as well as a generator that's uh, safe to use. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of gas generators, uh, especially when it gets really, really hot and really, really dry towards uh, August and September. You also want to consider, especially if you're on in a natural location, how far you're going to be away from um, basic sustenances. So making sure that you pack enough water, sunscreen, making sure everyone knows what, well, where the toilet is, if there is a toilet or if there is not. Yes. Have an agreed upon place where that's going to be. Comfort allows people to have peace of mind, to have a smooth shoot. And sometimes we're so busy planning these big ideas and things we want to execute that it's like, oh, there's nowhere to use the bathroom here or there's nowhere to park or we can only park for two hours and then we have to hike to the location or whatever the situation is. These things come up. The good thing is that the day and age we live in, you can find a lot of the answers online. We linked some at the in the show notes, just some good resources and even um, some online courses you can take. But for sure, having those basics is like the fundamentals and also just accessibility. Like, is it stairs, elevators? Maybe you go scout it, but you don't have all your camera and equipment. So you don't think about where you're going to put that and you get there. And I, I haven't necessarily done this before, um, but you get there and you look around. It's like, OK, great. I can use it. It's like 360 shooting space. But where are you going to put your stuff? <laughs> Exactly. And is that stuff going to be safe, too? There are, I mean, there are many places where I'm assigned to shoot, um, luckily, that have uh, added security personnel. So um, that that weighs kind of off your shoulders. But I have, you know, shot in places where I didn't have that. And literally, I'll be behind a camera and the rest of my gear is (laughs) hanging in front of me as if it's like a koala hanging off a tree. Like, (laughs) it's, um, it's cumbersome. And you don't get into really what you're there to do, which is, you know, capture, capture the, capture the experience. And when it comes to site-specific capture, there's, um, there are usually two ways that uh, clients like to go. Uh, One is, you know, capture everything that happened at the particular time it happened, or capture the experience of what the like the audience experience of the piece. Now, usually there'll be enough coverage where both are possible, or like maybe if there are two cameras, maybe both will be possible. But you also want to consider um, how, if you are creating a site-specific work and you want it to be captured in some way, how do you want that video to read? And there are different kinds of practical considerations that go along with that. Like if you're looking to stage a work, for example, if you're looking to, um, to tour the work to different sites and want to give an overview of, Hey, here's what's happening when maybe the straight, you know, chronological documentation is the way to go. If you're looking for more of a, uh, 
I suppose more of a, a grant specific to a certain theme or a certain idea, maybe you want to go the more experiential route. But even, even going in that vein, you want to be aware that what you're doing is you're capturing a documentation of a piece created for a site. The documentation of that piece is not inherently a dance film. It's, you know, oftentimes someone else coming in and, you know, taking in that piece. And a lot of times when it comes to submissions, we'll have a lot of site-specific captures that are submitted as dance films. And while it is, well, they are providing a very interesting perspective on the work, it's not really delving into the potential of the filmic medium enough to really, you know, qualify as something that's ready to screen. With documentation... I feel like we're always using, I, like, it's one shot. We're just seeing it in this mediated view, one kind of camera setup. I think what the magic of all these on-site locations is that we have different points of view, how the camera is set up, how many times is the camera changing that setup. And with that, when you're thinking about it, you're not just documenting it. You are creating a visual experience in that pre-planning part before you're shooting. You should create a shot list of how you are seeing the film. And that goes along with storyboarding. And that's going to help you really guide the viewer into a cinematic experience. And that's what is truly the separation of just capturing what's in the moment and versus what you're intending to show to audiences. And that's what really brings it out and makes that, that location sparkle. Because when are you ever going to see a crazy close-up shot of someone's hand touching a leaf or a ground shot of the cement and you're getting you're seeing the feet really feel the texture of the ground uh having that shot list and thinking about it beforehand really helps organize what Whenever you're going to get as a final dance film output. even just from like a literacy perspective not even how to make it i always reference graphic novel and visual storytelling resources like scott mcleod um understanding comics even making comics, Will Eisner, visual storytelling, these sorts of perspectives to me contribute to shot lists and visual storytelling. Of course, it's like right there in the name. But the difference between something like a comic yeah. or a graphic novel or a painting where you have to somehow make that representation visually believable or possible, you have to manifest it in the real world in some way to create it in this visual form and it's definitely a huge challenge so while shot lists are very important it's also important to see how does my idea actually get grounded in reality one specific example i have is we were yeah. with the jam youth project we were shooting um our, our dance film recess which takes place on a playground it's like tap dance at recess, basically. There's bucket percussion. They turn the playground into essentially like a 3D beatbox situation. And it's all about fun and play and experimentation. And we had this visualization, this magic moment where we were going to go like literally jump into the second verse. And they were going to have their runners or sneakers. And 
like their tennis shoes, like whatever shoes they had, their combat boots in the first part, and they would jump up in the air, and in the next shot they would land, and they would be on the tap board surface, and they would have their tap shoes on. And when it came to the actual shooting day, we had to make a game time decision and say, you know what? We're not going to install this tap floor. We're losing light. We got to think about our sound. We have to think about all these factors here. And instead of trying to get that one moment that we planned on the shot list that was such a like pivotal thing we wanted to do, we had to scrap it. And ultimately, we liked the final result we had. We had everybody still do the jump, but we just didn't have that movie magic moment. And they kept on their Converse or their combat boots or whatever they had. And they danced on the sawdust. And it was kind of like a cool subversive way to say, yeah, we're still dancing on wood, but it's just, we're shredding. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Scheduling is definitely key in that. And you have to make those decisions, those make or break decisions to keep the shoot moving smoothly. So if you could figure out what that schedule looks like, including whatever props have to be involved, that's going to make you and your performers as happy as possible. And with that, I want to say scheduling breaks. Breaks are very important. I know I have a problem for just being so anxious when I'm recording and I just want to go, go, go and go. But then I I'm running off adrenaline and I forget that other people are maybe not running on the same kind of energy as I am. So that's a part of your scheduling. And also when you're creating those shot lists, knowing if you're outside, what the sun is going to look like if you're doing continuity editing and you got to go with the sun in that instance. So It's not just your shot list schedule or what your performance schedule is. It's also taking care of the people for lunch and those bathroom breaks or sanity breaks because we all got to take a second to breathe. Exactly. Yeah, the sun is uh, the best piece of lighting equipment you'll ever have. And there are actually apps that can help you uh, kind of plan out what different spaces will look like at different times of day. But uh, but yeah, I mean, typically the golden hour, sort of the early parts of the day, as well as the, the later parts of the day right before sundown are usually the best times to film. You also uh, really want to consider the temperature of the environment that you're going to be in, too. You want to consider that, you know, maybe the early part of the day is going to be great as far as lighting goes, but it could also be very, very cold. Or you might want to schedule earlier in the day because it's going to get warmer later on. Um, and I know I've worked on sh- union shoots where performers aren't even allowed to go on the space unless it is um, above a certain temperature uh, as well. So having, um, I mean, even having heaters nearby so dancers can keep warming up yeah. because, um, again, I think it was Amari Motion Carter who was uh, observing that the most injuries happened with the most frequency on film sets. And especially if you're going into a site where dancers aren't used to being, that really is uh, true tenfold as well. So you really want to take care of everybody um, in terms of their sustainability, in terms of their health. You have to remember you're dealing um, with human beings at the end of the day. And it's so easy 
um, well, I wouldn't say it's so easy, but it's it's common to see examples of just push through, just grind through. The show must go on. It's a form of objectification. It's a form of dehumanization to just um, treat dancers or just people that way. Um, so it's really important to remember those relationships matter with the people you're working with. And if you do not treat your people well, they will not come back and you might things might ripple out and other people won't come by either. So it's good to, and you know, on the, on the flip side, when you treat people well, the positive effects come back to you as well. So I've definitely seen that, um, you know, in my own life and in the lives of others. And it's important to remember that at the end of the day, even if you're dealing with, we're making a video, it's like, yeah, but you're working with people to accomplish that. And even dealing with these locations, we can start to think of them as places and refer to them as places. But essentially, in a lot of these places, there are people or communities that we have to be in communication with or strangers that might come by that we have to manage. And there's all sorts of relationships that are central to this. And another component of those relationships that is not just the in the moment how you feel is how do you manage your communications? How do you manage your permits, your contracts, your agreements? It's so important to have these things in writing and to also have a clear um, lineage of them. You know, there, I, I, just the, the kind of work I do, I work with a lot of different clients, a lot of different projects. I have like 10 email addresses. I'm not like, it's a lot, but for me, I'm able to keep things organized because I keep everything compartmentalized and it's really frustrating in any project when someone's shifting from text to email to Instagram to Facebook, which I never even check, you know, so it's important to have that understanding as well of like, how are we communicating? How are we planning? And when you get there, what has been agreed upon so that, you know, you also don't get with any get hit with any fines on the way out too, or any fees. So you understand what you're permitted to do in your use of the space. Also making sure someone's there on site to assist the day of the event or the shoot. Because if you don't have that, uh, you got to hope everything goes right. <laughs> yes. And also taking care of the space itself. If you are in a historic building, do not break any windows. If you're working with kids in a historic building, make sure they don't break any windows. If you are in a national park, you don't use drones. If you post your drone footage online, you will get fined. If you use fire in a forest, you might get fined. If you use fire and uh, fire helicopters start circling your chute and delay it, you might also get fined. All of those have happened to people I know on sets. <laughs> if you choreograph class material in a studio and transpose it on a site, we can tell. If you transpose that material in a V formation, we can definitely tell. <laughs> So there are so many things that you need to consider really from every stage of the filmmaking process when you are creating on site, not just as far as what the audience is going to see on screen, but also how you take care of yourself, your fellow community members in creation with you and the space around it. Site-specific creation is beautiful. It really is a way to... Uh, connect with the body and your creative process outside of what has become a preordained space for that. But there's so many things you need to keep in mind at every single step in that process. 
This is Frameform, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Episode edited by the Frameform team and music by Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening.